0: Thank you for tuning in to the WHAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello and welcome to the Women in Manufacturing Podcast. My name is Fran Brunel, and I'm the president of Accelerated Manufacturing Brokers, Inc., a company that specializes in mergers and acquisitions nationally within the manufacturing sectors, and I'm your host for today's show. So today, we welcome to the show, Kristen Carlson. Kristen is the president of Peerless Precision Inc. in Westfield, Massachusetts. Peerless specializes in complex components for the aerospace and defense industries. Kristen is also the past president of the Western Massachusetts chapter of the National Tooling and Machining Association, and she currently serves as trustee. Kristen also just began serving a six-year term as the chair of the state of Massachusetts Workforce Training Fund's Advisory Board. Boy, that's a tongue twister. Say that six times fast. Kristen, we are so appreciative of you taking the time to join us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Fran. It's really good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Introduce our listeners to Peerless Precision. Tell us what you do, how the company started, and how you landed in a leadership
1: role there. Sure. Well, Peerless Precision was initially founded in 1976 by a gentleman I can't believe I'm blanking on his name right now, Stan Alaknup. In 1997, he was looking to sell the company because he wanted to retire. At that time, my father, Larry, who was a serial entrepreneur when I was growing up, was looking to purchase an established business that he could grow. So he found Peerless and Stan and my father struck a deal. And so the company has been in my family for 24 years this April. It will have been my family business. I've grown up in the shop. And I started working here as the shop kid in 1997 when I was 15, sweeping floors and climbing into machines and cleaning them out. Peerless focuses on the manufacture of small precision complex mechanical components, primarily for the aerospace and defense industries. We do do work for various commercial industries and some medical devices as well. When I talk small We max out in size at 6-inch diameter and 10-inch cube, and we just go down from there. Complex machining, close tolerance work. So we really excel when tolerances between 10 thousandths of an inch and 50 millionths of an inch are required. We do everything here from ordering the raw stock through final inspection. We have CNC milling, four and five access, a CNC lathe department. Surface and cylindrical grinding, lapping, honing, laser welding, assembly, laser marking its pretty much anything that needs to be done. If we can't get it done under our roof, we have an extensive supply chain that is qualified with us that we can make sure to send out so that our customers get exactly what they're expecting when they're ready for delivery.
0: Well, it sounds like you do a lot more under one roof than most people do. And the tolerances that you're
1: talking about are incredible.
0: Not a lot of shops have that kind of capability.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Fran. You know, a lot of shops focus on just the CNC machining aspect of manufacturing, but there's so much more. And what we do in here, while we do have a very good CNC department, The, what I call the finished machining side, which is all those other operations that we do, it's more of an artwork. It's more manual with the use of machines. It's something that they really don't teach a lot in school anymore either. So it's a trade, an art form for the trade that we keep alive through on the job training. And it's what really draws our customers to us because we you know can provide this close tolerance work these operations that other shops are unable to.
0: You know, I find that really interesting one statement you just said that they're not teaching a certain skill in the trade schools anymore. And that is true a few different like so think about tool and die making, right? Very hard to get people that know how to do it right. So, as a business owner, how do you ensure continuity of your workforce for the skills that you need to have performed if it's not being taught in
1: school? So, I'm a big fan of hiring entry level employees, whether they have gone through a vocational or technical training program, or if they've just got the attitude and aptitude, the mechanical aptitude specifically to learn, to become a machinist through training at our company. So the benefits for us when we hire an entry-level employee is they're you know they're very green. When they're right out of school, their minds are very open to learning and they're eager to learn and grow. So when we're looking to train someone in one of those departments that they're not necessarily going to get the training at all or minimal introduction to it in school, we bring them in as soon as they... Are able to go on a co-op, or if they've graduated from a program, or they've completed a 12-week training program to bring them in here and start them from the ground up.
0: That's fabulous. So it almost sounds like you're you're hiring for character and aptitude and training for skill, which is great. I have several clients across the country who basically one guy specifically in the gear industry, and he does the same thing you do as far as pulling kids in from co-op programs in high school. And it's funny because he says, I could hire from competitors. I could hire someone already trained, but that person typically comes with really bad habits that I don't
1: like. You know, that's so accurate. I always say, and this isn't saying anything bad about, you know, the experienced folks, but what happens is that when you hire someone you know, from another shop and just, I'm going to put this out there. I am not a fan of poaching, you know, poaching employees that don't openly apply to an active position that I'm trying to hire for. If they apply to me, it's one thing, but I never go out seeking them from competitors, colleagues, or collaborators because that's not solving any problems. That's just creating more because we, you know, experienced manufacturing employees, we have a very small pond with a limited number of fish that we can pull out of it. And If we keep fishing from that same pond, eventually it's going to be empty. And where are we going to be from there? Sure. And eventually you reap what you sow, right? Right. right. Yeah. So it does not create goodwill and it burns bridges, which I won't do. And I don't appreciate my friends in the industry doing it either. But your colleague or client's statement was completely accurate. I always say that you know when they've been in this business for a long time, they're usually a little bit tainted by it. You know, just because there was a time where it was completely acceptable to bounce back and forth to different shops, chasing that extra nickel or 25 cents an hour. And as an employer, someone who does the hiring, you know, with the assistance of my management team as well, when we see a resume and they've showed that they've bounced back and forth to all these shops every six months or every year, we don't necessarily want to hire them here because that means that... Any amount of investment or training that we put in, we won't see an ROI on it because it's the type of person who's going to leave the moment they get, you know, a better monetary opportunity somewhere.
0: Sure. You're also a fan of creating
1: a certain type of environment where people want to stay. Talk a little bit about that. You know, I was... So, I've been in the role that I am now as an employer for a little over eight years now. And I can still say that I was an employee a lot longer than I've been an employer. So, when I look at how I want to treat the people within my company, how I want them to feel about working here, I think of what I wanted or what I received in previous jobs that I had before this. So, it's, you know, it's that instilling that feeling that they know that they're doing something to make a difference, that they're valued, that we're investing in their training. And on top of it all, you know, that I want them to have fun both, you know, while being serious and working, but I want them to enjoy working here. But then also we do kind of extra things on the side in normal years when there's not a pandemic preventing us from doing all this, all this fun stuff. I've started taking my, my team ax throwing. A couple of years ago, kind of as a reward for when we were really busy and as a good stress relief, I feed them a lot. I'm a baker in my free time, so I'll go to town and start baking cakes and cookies and just bring those in. It's, you know, and not being shy about going around and, you know, positive reinforcement goes a long way. You don't only point out when something needs to be fixed, but you enforce when good behavior and good work ethic is there.
0: Sure. That's really good. Funny. So, how did your team like the axe throwing? Little side note, because we were just
1: talking about this in my office as our next team event. I would recommend axe throwing for companies as a team, you know, just a team building or just a fun employee recognition, employee appreciation day for everybody. They loved it. It was, you know, some of them. Because a lot of the axe throwing venues, they set up games where you play against each other, and then there's a winner. So I'm a, I love axe throwing. There's something empowering of it. You just feel like, oh, I'm so strong. This was awesome. They were a little nervous about playing against me in those games because they didn't want to beat me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, you know, they all had a good. They all had a good time, and you know, anytime we get the chance. You know, we're going to do it, and they most everyone in the shop wants to go. Not everyone likes to participate in things, and that's fine. I'm not going to force it on them. But those who really want to do those extra things that I like to do for everyone are more than welcome to join us. Yeah, that's great.
0: Hey, I want to dive in more into some of the stuff that you're doing to lead youth into the industry. But before we get to that point, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and talk about the family aspect of the business, you took over from your dad. Mm -hmm. I know from talking to owners all over the country who are second or third generation in the industry, that can be a challenge in employee relationships and respect and things of that nature when you're taking over from, you know, an older family member. What was that like for you? How did you overcome the challenges?
1: It was definitely a challenge. And the circumstances that brought me to that point are a little bit, I guess, out of the norm or not the same story as a lot of people. My father had been diagnosed with colon cancer in 2009. And at the time I was living in California because growing up in a family business and especially right after I, I had come home after college, I was working with the family, and I was living at home with the family, and I'm the oldest of four, and they were all living at home. So there was no separation, and I needed to kind of get out on my own. So I had moved to California. I was there for eight years. In 2009, I, I got the news that he had been diagnosed with colon cancer. And when he told me that, he had asked me if something were to happen to him, would I come home and help my mother either keep the company going or decide that it was the best move to sell it? And I said, absolutely. Side note, it's one of those things where my dad, Always wanted to be me to be the one to take over the company. And I'm stubborn, just like he was. And I didn't want someone laying out my life's path for me. So I fought it all the way when I was younger. He had gone through chemotherapy. He had surgery. He was given a clean bill of health at the end of 2010. Don't come back for another year. And then by the end of 2011, it had come back metastasized and he was terminal. So In the spring of 2012, he let me know what was going on and I told him, you know, I'd be coming home that summer. There was a lot of unknowns because, you know, the customers didn't, they didn't remember me. I had been gone for eight years. If they did know who I was or remember who I was, it was when I was 20 and 21, just doing shipping and receiving and not really dealing with them on the level that I am now, the company, you know, the people in the company also saw me as the, you know, the kid who left. And there's a lot of, a lot of times when companies get passed down to the second generation where it either goes really well or it doesn't. And the company ends up getting run into the ground because of mismanagement. When I made the decision to come back here to help my mom out, I was, you know, I was adamant that I was going to succeed in this because I had just left my life in California to come back here for it. So there were a lot of challenges. Most everyone who was in the shop then, and most of them are still here, knew me as the boss's daughter. They called me California girl. And I was also, I just turned 30 about three weeks before my father passed away. So I started running the company at 29. So I was some silly little girl who didn't know what she was doing. And I heard that not directly to my face, but, you know, machinists gossip a lot <laughs> and you knew it was going around in the shop floor. So because of my stubbornness and my, you know, just my go-to attitude, I took that as a challenge and I said, challenge accepted and I was going to prove them wrong. Our customers all had exit strategies because they didn't know what was going to go on after my dad passed away. We haven't lost any customers. I only had to repurpose one of our employees outside of the building during the first year and a half. And it was a manager who was not in line with how we wanted to grow the company and bringing new customers in. So I had one manager who was very supportive, who was actually my kind of my boss when I was in shipping and receiving here in the early 2000s. And he knew that if I hadn't come back the company probably wouldn't have survived. So, you know, you deal with the, well, we've known her since she was between 15 and 18 years old. Some of them met me when I was in my early 20s. And again, they didn't know me. So it was, you know, first learning, learning about everyone, learning about the company. I listened a lot to our customers, to our vendors. I worked with the Massachusetts Manufacturing Extension Partnership on strategic planning and business growth, you know, to really... Lay out plans on how to keep us going and how to grow us so we wouldn't stay stagnant. And there was a lot of me walking around yelling and screaming at people for the first year and a half to make sure that they knew that the buck stopped with me and that I was the one in charge at that point. You know, so a lot of it, it was dealing with, I hate to say it, but there was dealing with a lot of misogyny on my end and proving them wrong and showing them that I had my big girl pants on pretty much.
0: Yeah. well, you know what? It's a lot of years later and here you are. The company yeah. is clearly successful. So you did prove them wrong. So culture shift, you're running things different than dad did. Talk about some of those changes.
1: Yeah, so it was before everything came top down. So if things needed to be changed or improvements, the ideas weren't necessarily coming from the people on the floor who I consider the experts, they were coming from the top. I changed this to a bottom-up. There are still decisions that get made that come directly from me because I put myself out there to see new technologies and everything. And I want to make sure that we have the latest and greatest and we don't get left behind in the dust with how fast technology is changing. But I want the folks on the floor, the folks making the parts, running the machines, again, they're the experts. They know what's going on daily out there. And they're the ones who are going to be able to give us the best ideas. There was a long time where if a customer called looking for a part and we were late on it, it was acceptable for false truths to be given to our customers to make us not, so we wouldn't look bad. You know, the problem with lying or giving false truths ahead of time is they usually come out. And how many times, you know, can you say the same thing You know, even if it's not the truth, before you either start believing it or your customers find out that you have been lying. So I've changed it so that we, you know, if we know something's happened and we're not going to meet a delivery date or we're running close to where it's possible we're going to go behind, we're proactive about it. We reach out to our customers ahead of time. They are much more understanding. Don't ask for forgiveness later, ask for permission first. It goes a long way.
0: Mm hmm. Very good. You also touched on something that I'd like you to speak into a little bit. So when you took over, you said you reached out to the Manufacturing Extension Partnership. It's called something different in every state, but every state has a Manufacturing Extension Partnership. I am amazed at how many people don't know of this organization's existence and what they do for the manufacturing communities that they reside in. Can you speak into that a little bit?
1: You know, it's, it's funny that this comes up because part, you know, when I was first interviewing for the chair position for the Workforce Training Fund Advisory Board, an awareness issue got brought up about them too. And MEPs, it's all about, it's it's awareness. It's how are they getting the word out to the manufacturing community? How are they advertising? I knew about a lot of these places beforehand because my dad was very involved at the state level with manufacturing growth and initiatives, but it's If a manufacturer is not aware of programs that are out there to either help with their training goals or to expose them to new technologies or way of doing things, it's because the message is not reaching them. Again, it's an awareness. It's a marketing issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Just like, you know, and and I'm sure it's like this in most other states, but in Massachusetts, every employer, a percentage of our unemployment, state unemployment taxes go towards the workforce training fund. So we're all paying into it. I don't remember the percentage off the top of my head of companies that actually utilize the workforce training fund, but it's nowhere near the amount of companies that actually pay for it because they're not aware that it exists. Sure. Sure.
0: Yeah, we as people buy manufacturing companies through my organization. To every buyer, we introduce them in whatever state the business was sold in to the manufacturing extension partnership. You know, we've had this organization help with applying for grants to get ISO certification, to provide lean training for a business, sales and marketing, help seminars, things like that. So it's a wonderful organization.
1: You know, it's 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 important too for these manufacturing companies to be involved with trade associations because, you know, the manufacturing extension partnerships, other training programs are usually aligned with these associations. And that's a really easy way for them to get in front of the manufacturer. So if the manufacturers are part of the trade associations, they will get exposed to training opportunities more often than not. Mm
0: -hmm. I know you've been very involved in your local NTMA chapter, serving as past president and now trustee, is it? That's correct. Yeah. Let's move on a little bit. I love some of this stuff that I know you're doing with you know work programs bringing youth introducing youth to manufacturing and kind of trying to rewrite the narrative about what
1: current day manufacturing is like talk to us about that a little bit so manufacturing has long had a bad reputation and it's it's had a bad reputation longer than we've all been trying to change that view of us so if you were to talk to a random person on the street that, and I'm going to assume this random person does not have any family members who are in advanced manufacturing or manufacturing of any type. First, if you ask them what manufacturing means in America, they will probably tell you that everything gets made over in China because it's again, it's an awareness issue. If you don't have a family member who's in manufacturing, or if you're not in there yourself, you probably don't even know what's going on in in your backyard. It's, you know, the manufacturing is viewed as it was in, you know, 80s and before, where it's a dark, dirty place to work. You go to a vocational or technical school because you're not going to be cut out for college. And it's a place where there's no environmental controls. You're going to get sick. You're going to get exposed to chemicals. So knowing that that's how a lot of people view our industry And, you know, seeing my shop and shops that are, you know, bigger and a little bit more advanced than mine are, you know, there's, there's this opportunity to really show not just students, but teachers, guidance counselors, parents, you know, what it really is and the opportunities that are there. So, you know, college isn't cheap to go to and not everything that we do in life requires a college degree. And I think more and more people are, people and companies are starting to see that, again, attitude and aptitude go a long way with my company experience, you know, can outweigh the benefits of having a bachelor's degree as well. So we've got this opportunity to say, Hey, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that we make. And I'm going to say a lot of cool stuff that gets made in Massachusetts and Westfield. I want to show them that it's cool things. It's not just making, you know, face masks or parts for electronic boards, but I like to apply stories to it. So. You know, there's another company in Westfield that during the last Winter Olympics was contracted by the bobsled team and they got to make their bobsled for the American Winter Olympic, you know, team. And one was, mm-hmm. uh, it was like in 2018 or 20, I think it was 2018. So that's cool. You know, when when you look up at a plane or a helicopter, every single one that's flying up in the sky right now has $50,000 to $100,000 worth of parts that came out of Westfield, Massachusetts, where my company is. You know, and we make those really tiny components, the really critical components that go in those engines and fuel injection systems that make those planes and helicopters fly safely. My favorite story or claim to fame, and i am it's getting too old where the kids might not remember it for too much longer. But, you know, back in 2013, when we had the Boston Marathon bomber, one of my largest customers makes thermal imaging, infrared and night vision cameras. And we are one of three critical component suppliers in New England to this company. When they caught the Boston Marathon bomber underneath the tarp in the boat in Watertown, Massachusetts, it was with a thermal imaging camera. When I saw my customer's logo on that video, I got really excited. I called right away and I said, hey, is there any chance that parts that came out of my shop could have been in that camera. And for that customer, everything serialized so that you can trace back to where they came from. And we found out that parts that were manufactured at Peerless Precision in Westfield, Massachusetts, were in the thermal camera mounted to the bottom of the police helicopter that caught the Boston Marathon bomber. So when I can tell kids that story and they actually remember seeing it on TV or their parents talk about it, they get so excited because, you know, in a roundabout way, what we did helped catch the bad guy. And that is what we do.
0: That's
1: amazing. I love that story. (laughs) So,
0: yeah, it you know, I completely agree with you that. You know, you said college is expensive. It's not only expensive, it's in some cases almost useless. Right. People are graduating with degrees for jobs that don't exist. They're living in mom and dad's basement. And that narrative struck me when you and I talked the first time. You told me a story about your plant manager, when he started with you, and how old he was when he was building his first house. And I thought, wow, what a story, what a narrative. You know, people have the wrong impression of manufacturing. You know, people have 100000 in, in student loan debt, and they're living in mom and dad's basement. Tell this story real quick, if you don't mind, of your plant
1: manager. So so Rick, who is our foreman, had started here when he was 18. He is a year older than I am. He'll be 39 at the end of this month. I just turned 38 last year. So, or no, he'll be 40 this year because I'll be 39. So yeah, he's about to turn 40 this month. He started with us at 18 as a co-op student. And he is, oh man, he is talented. Not only is he our foreman, but he is the top cylindrical grinder in our shop. And he trains every incoming employee in that department. At 21, he was making enough money here to start building his own home. That's great. And and he started building his home. I love it. I absolutely love it. If you were to ask a 21-year-old right now when they think they're going to be able to buy a house, I guarantee you they will not be able to give you an answer.
0: That's right. You know what? Manufacturing, it is an amazing career choice. And people don't understand that they can have an
1: absolutely wonderful life. Taking up a career in manufacturing, And right. so you know you what? Know, another benefit of it is, is that you know, again, I grew up with a father who owned a machine shop, who was it's college or bust. Which later on, we, you know, both decided that was probably the wrong message he should have been sending his kids, but. You know, it's it's really important to do, to let these kids and these schools and these parents know that just because you go into a trade and start working right out of high school doesn't mean that you lose the opportunity to go to college because more often than not, employers like myself, we want to invest in our company. We want to invest in our employees. So, you know, a lot of companies out there will offer tuition reimbursement. So, that our employees can get the additional training, they can go to college. And as long as they get good grades, they end up not having to pay for it.
0: That's fabulous. Kristen, we are running out of time. Before I let you go, I would like you to give our listeners, tell them how they can reach you if they want to learn more about peerless precision.
1: What's the best way to reach out? Sure. So our website is www.peerlessprecision.com. That's P-E-E-R-L-E-S-S-P-R-E-C-I-S-I-O-N.com. My email address, if they want to reach out to me directly, and I hope I'm not going to regret doing this with uh, sales calls, but it is K Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N at peerlessprecision.com. We are on LinkedIn and we are on Facebook as well.
0: Fabulous. Kristen Carlson. She throws an axe, she bakes, and she runs an incredibly successful manufacturing company. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Fran. I really enjoyed it. I'd like to encourage our listeners to visit www.whampodcast.com, where you can listen to all our shows and other manufacturing podcasts brought to you by the Jacket Media Company. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for joining the Wham Podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.